This is loudspeaker. Schizophrenia, a serious and chronic disease which affects seven out of 1,000 people in the United States. It's recognized as truly odd and irrational behavior. And during a psychotic break, when an individual expresses these things, it could be truly terrifying. Schizophrenia is characterized by thoughts or experiences that seem out of touch with reality. A combination of genetics, environment, and altered brain chemistry may all play a role. Treatment is usually lifelong and effects and impact on the family members can be devastating as well. Imagine you are the mother of a child with schizophrenia. Tonight, I meet with Katar Diamond as she talks about her life with her son, Noah, who for 15 years had a better than normal childhood until his first psychotic break at age 15. Join us as she talks about her journey through her son's serious mental illness and the champion she's become to help educate others on better understanding this disease. Welcome to The Spark. I'm your host, Stephanie James. I am just so pleased to welcome Kartar to The Spark. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it a lot. (laughs) You've had a journey that a lot of mothers haven't had to go through. And you've written a memoir about this to help, I'm imagining, other parents that are dealing with mental illness with their children, that they might experience some of these things as well. Tell us a little bit more about was your idea for writing the book that came through? I'm a writer in other fields. And I knew that eventually if I wrote this memoir and chronicled the things that happened to me and my son, I knew it would be very therapeutic, number one, for me personally. And every parent, every caretaker, they deal and cope with this stress in their own way. And so for me, it was a creative outlet. But I've also read memoirs by other family members. There aren't a whole lot of them, but I've read a few of them and I felt better. I felt less stigmatized myself. I felt like there's somebody out there in the world who can relate to what I'm going through. I definitely wanted to inspire and console other family members. Um, I tend to say parents a lot, but because they are often the main caretaker, especially the mother. But I've also encountered brothers and sisters and also even adult children taking care of their mother or father who has mental illness. So it's everybody. And I also have had an agenda to use the book as an advocacy tool. Now, sometimes legislators, they need to seal 10,000 signatures or a stack up to the ceiling of petitions in order to make changes. But we also know that sometimes just hearing a personal story can really hit them hard. So I'm hoping to get the book into the hands of people who can actually make a difference in our mental health care system. So I'm kind of a whistleblower, one of many, about how dysfunctional it is. And that's throughout the whole memoir, just some of the appalling things that we went through, which in some ways rivaled the mental illness itself in terms of (laughs) causing stress. The way people are treated who have mental illness, as well as their family members, it needs to be outed. (laughs) 
Absolutely. And when I first heard about your book, I resonated with it so much. There are people in the community that look like everybody else, and yet I'm hearing this being stigmatized Mm -hmm. um, or people being less than. This is an issue that's really dear to my heart as well. And what some people don't know is that it's almost a cliche, but a lot of people with schizophrenia have almost genius level or genius level IQ. They're not thinking clearly in certain realms, but in other realms, they're highly intelligent. And often, again, the cliche is that they're very musical, very artistic. And so to have you had that opportunity where they can at least express their own creativity is very therapeutic and not just playing around games, basket weaving. We're talking about people who can really do some very impressive things. Absolutely. Yeah, that's good. (laughs) So, Katar, tell us about your own journey. Tell us about your journey with Noah? He was a normal kid, better than normal in so many ways up until the age of 15. And the summer that he was 15, he started saying really outlandish things. Some of the statements were paranoid, like he said that the the neighbor was stealing all of his musical ideas He said things that were grandiose, like he said that he had to go to India where he's appreciated. Only the people there know how great he is, (laughs) like he's a cult leader or something. And he was just saying things so off the chart that it didn't take long for us to realize that it's probably not even drug abuse. We are probably talking about mental illness and we got these varying diagnoses in the beginning and it was that's stressful in and of itself for a parent, but the, I found out quickly, I started researching, and the only consolation I had was that even though the diagnosis may not have been accurate, it seems like many of the medications are the same, whether it's bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. So I was trying to make myself feel better thinking, all right, they're addressing the symptoms. There's an overlap there. But obviously, as parents, we go through this whole range of emotions. We're grieving for the person that is leaving us as another person and personality is coming into that body. We're worrying about how the world will treat them. And things happen like I'm watching TV. Let's say I hear about someone that's gone missing, a young person. I freeze up because I actually know what that's like. Even though their missing person situation may not be mental illness, I still register the same kind of PTSD. There are just other examples like that where I know that there are other parents suffering in different ways, or sometimes your kid just doesn't turn out the way you want. Maybe they're in trouble with the law or what have you. And we have to go through that process of how much can we help that person? Because with schizophrenia in particular, half the people don't even know that they're ill. It's part of the illness anosognosia. And so we're dealing with people who don't want help a lot. And that is also extremely frustrating as a parent. Whenever I drive by a homeless person, I'm thinking, wow, there's a whole other world out there of people who don't know what's going on. And they may be thinking, why isn't somebody calling an ambulance? Or where are their parents? What's happened to this person? It's still a mystery to the general population of how these people slip through the cracks. 
So we've been through a lot. My son is now, he's uh, 29. And so it's been 14 years, almost half his life that uh, we've been struggling with this. And in the memoir, I go over experiences that we had with psychiatrists that were not good, experiences in hospitals that were not good, board and cares that were not therapeutic, interactions with law enforcement, you name it. It's been quite a dramatic journey. <laughs> my, my heart goes out also to Noah but, and other individuals. I think one of my really profound moments in working with serious mental illness was getting to know individuals and their stories. And for some of the folks that really were aware of what was happening to them as they had their break, some of them had psychotic breaks, some of them just felt their thinking changing. And that was really profound to me, working with individuals who were really experiencing their own grief process around having memories of having a happy childhood. And then oftentimes, as it is, oftentimes a genetic predisposition, it developing through puberty as the onset and watching themselves or experiencing themselves start to hallucinate or start to have these paranoid thoughts. And God, I mean, talk about depth of compassion and intimacy to really experience another human being and them sharing the depth of what most of us will never have to deal with in our lives. And a lot of people don't know that medication doesn't fix everything. It might tamp down on the hallucinations. My son experiences visual, auditory, and olfactory hallucinations. He's on now on the best medication, and he still has these experiences. And so, again, the general public might be frustrated. Why doesn't this person just take their medication? <laughs> Maybe they are, and there's still things that are not working. And of course, there's that whole other camp that thinks the medications make things worse. That's controversial. But I've had conversations with my son where I want to show empathy. I want to hear what he has to say. I want to even ask him things like, okay, you're on a new medication. Are you still hearing voices? But I also don't want to bring up what might be a, a stressful or upsetting memory for him. It really is quite a, an experience to be involved with a mentally ill person where you want to support them. You don't necessarily want to bolster their delusions, but you also don't want to dismiss their reality. We live in a world right now and very polarized in the United States, obviously. And, and I can be joking or cavalier about it, but we have half the country thinking the other half is crazy and vice versa. And yet we know that everybody in that category is functional and <laughs> has their lives to live. And so when we're talking about mental illness and your perception of reality, how much can we relate to of what a person is experiencing? Like, for instance, my son might feel cold when it's hot out, or he might say, oh, this sandwich, the, the chicken tastes rancid when I know it's as fresh as can be. So they're experiencing everything very differently, not all the time, but some of the time. I remember one time my son told me that when somebody leaves the room, he's not really sure if they exist anymore. 
Mm-hmm. So some of the things that we might experience in fleeting moments, they have all the time or in a dream state. take us back to when Noah was 15. What was that like for you? People who know me know that I'm a doer. Uh, In fact, that's what Kartar means. It's a spiritual name, which means God is the doer of everything. And so like other parents also, when we're confronted with this mystery, a challenge, we want to get to the bottom of it right away. And so for quite a long time, it's like, okay, we have this problem. Let's find the right doctor. Let's find the right medication. Let's find the right environment for him to be in. Like one of our first big mistakes was sending him off to a school out of state, which was supposed to cater to teens with mental illness. And they really didn't, or let's say they certainly didn't handle schizophrenia appropriately. I'm on this holy grail searching for answers and also thinking that we can get a handle on it much sooner than we actually did. And so it was an education process for me. I joined NAMI. I started going to family support meetings, and it took a while for it to really sink in. This is a lifelong illness. There's no cure for it right now. My son may not ever be able to work again. Of course, there's a spectrum to it. There are people with schizophrenia who work and live independently, but there's also quite a few who cannot live independently and cannot work. And again, like here I had this gifted son who ended up dropping out of high school. He may not care. At this point, I don't care. But in the beginning, it was almost unfathomable to me that he was dropping out of life like that. So it just goes on and on where I tried to find more educational things. I tried to find the answers. And then we come up empty-handed a lot where we realize, you know what? There actually aren't great answers here. So now what do we do? (laughs) So... Yeah, so it was hard for a long time. And he went to this program from like age 16 to 18, got worse. We brought him home, got him with some local therapists four days a week. They were keeping him in, what would you call it, like a a holding pattern. He wasn't getting better. But then when the insurance stopped paying, that program ended. (laughs) It is amazing how much insurance controls things. In fact, I recently listened to a podcast where one of the panel speakers was the famous Dr. Drew Pinsky, and he was talking about how frustrated he has been with the inability to prescribe in the way that he knows he needs to for some of you know, his patients because the insurance company is, is holding on you know, to the power there. You learn a lot as you go through this process. And uh, my son went through all kinds of really horrendous experiences, which made him worse. And at a certain point, (laughs) parents start to think, am I going crazy? Are these people really mistreating him that way? Or are they really that reckless? I'll give you an example. He had once a board and care psychiatrist who gave my son Adderall. Okay, it's an ADD medication. 
correct me if I'm wrong, but I did read one journal that said Adderall has the same molecular structure as crystal meth. Yeah, I think it's one molecule off is what I read. Yeah. Okay. So psychiatrists know that you don't give somebody uh, with schizophrenia an ADD medication because it can catapult them into a manic episode. And so I'm looking at that going, how did he do that? Why? And of course, two weeks later, he had to be taken off of it because he was really getting aggressive. And I have friends who their sons or daughters have been put on the wrong medication. Nobody was paying attention. And then something awful happened. One friend, her son ended up assaulting her, breaking her nose and her ribs. He went off to jail. It never should have happened. Here's an example of mental illness being criminalized because of neglect or disregard from members of the mental health community. So we have to stop it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So what an amazing and also just scary at times, I imagine, search to find answers and to find the right medication and to find the right people to work with Noah. Yeah. And, and it's even, not like it's ever just, it's not like it's ever just solved. It's like you it said. Could be man- managed maybe. Yeah. And I've had one social worker at the LA County's Department of Mental Health. I was asking her for help. She actually said sometimes it has to get worse before it gets better. Uh, a lot of people don't know that some mental health communities, they turn people away because they haven't yet been a danger to themselves or others. They haven't yet committed a crime. I mean, can you imagine if we waited until someone was in fourth stage cancer before we said, all right, now we're going to treat you. It's so unfair. And I hope it changes. I hope over time and education and destigmatizing mental illness and making the public at large more aware that they'll vote in the right ways that we can get people the help they need. In any life, raising our children, even if it's challenging and tough, there are also beautiful and wonderful moments. What were those moments like for you with Noah? What stands out as you think about his teenage years? Were there moments where you felt like you were able just to enjoy each other? You were able to just live? I don't, I I hesitate to say normal life. Yeah, and I know you're meaning after his illness emerged. Before that, he was a complete jokester. He did impressions, and he was a total cut-up. He was hilarious. Teachers said he was the class clown. He was fun to be with, and I actually was really looking forward to what kind of adult he was going to be. He was that great as a kid. Then when the mental illness hit, it was like he lost his sense of humor. Everything was very serious. And then you also know teenage boys get very serious anyway. (laughs) And that's actually one of the things that makes it hard to diagnose mental illness because some of the things that teenage boys do and the risk taking and all that could be just written off as teenage hormones. And so I really didn't see the old Noah, as we say, hardly at all for over a decade. It was really sad. I really felt like I had to do some grieving for the loss of this person that I knew. Now, 
more recently, in the last year and a half, he's been in a good place. He's been more stable. And, and I'm seeing those glimmers of not the old Noah, but I'm seeing more of the kind, considerate person that he was before the mental illness emerged. And so we've had some special moments. And as an example, just recently, he emailed me a recording that he did of himself playing guitar. It was great. I listened to it and it's like, wow, he sounds like Eric Clapton or Jimi Hendrix. It's still there. That's one thing that I really love is that his talent is still there. I don't know if he enjoys it himself as much as he used to, but those are the, you know, those are the happy moments and <laughs> things like that. Yeah, it's getting better now as of recently. <laughs> What's been the change? I should say that he did end up homeless. He did end up hospitalized in a psychiatric um, hospitalization, actually three different facilities for almost two years. And when he was discharged to a lower level of care, honestly, he was starting to relapse. And that is another unbelievable thing that parents go through where we see them sometimes appear to be getting help. But if it isn't maintained, they can relapse. Extremely common. So I got really very panicky. But he had been on a three-year waiting list to get into a private residential program here in Southern California. They have 40 beds. There's thousands of people who need that kind of environment. We hit the lottery, actually, because when I called, they said, you know what, we're going to have an opening in about a month. Why don't you bring him in to interview? And then the second miracle happened is that he agreed to live there, even with a lot of rules. So I was just happy and stunned, but obviously a little nervous because I didn't know (laughs) if three weeks later we'd be getting an eviction (laughs) notice. So what's working about that program? There's a lot of things in place and they've been around for 30 years and people from all over the country call them to try to get advice because they are a recovery model. And they have a really great, highly trained staff and then a highly, like a good staff to patient ratio, we could say. They treat the people who live there with a lot of dignity and respect. They're firm, but very compassionate. They have a really great psychiatrist from UC Irvine who comes weekly. They have fun programs. They have things that the people who live there actually want to do instead of forcing them to do these things in a hospital that they don't want to do. They have a wonderful physical environment where people can really relax in uh, a garden and courtyard area. Because I should say that a lot of board and cares are in horrible crime-ridden areas with no grass, just the kind of thing that could make a non-mentally ill person very depressed. So where he's at now, they go out of their way to have everything be very lovely and nice. And they have a trained chef cooking healthy food. That's a big part of somebody's, you know, if they have a mood disorder and they're just being given sugar and white flour all day, that's not good. So I'm glad that they have this program with highly nutritious food. They celebrate every holiday with so much with the decorations and the gift giving and lots of activities so that the people don't isolate in their bedrooms. I could go on and on, but they really have it down to a science, we could say. And 
people have, there's some people who've lived there for 20 years. They're very happy there. Mm. They also, when they interview for people, they want to make sure, can we help this person? And also, how is that person going to blend in with our existing population? Are they going to get along with people? Is there going to be maybe some tension? So they're very careful about the equilibrium that they want with other people living there. We'll see. So far, so good. <laughs> it sounds uh, like an amazing place. What a is. gift. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Finally. It's just that we need to have a thousand other places like that. And exactly. they're few and far between. <laughs> with schizophrenia, it's about 1% of the population. With bipolar disorder, I think it's 1% to 2% of the population. There can be other diagnoses that get placed in that group of serious mental illness, although now we have to really distinguish between mental illness and serious mental illness because there are some people that are very high functioning in spite of their mental illness, whereas others who just absolutely need lifelong care. And so, yeah, there are a lot of people in the community. And another thing that the general population doesn't know really is that the sheer volume of homelessness that we now see is in direct relation to the closures of state mental hospitals over the last six, seven decades. Those places were not so good. Nobody wants to return to those days either where people were in psych wards where they were not taken care of well either. But at the same time, some people do need to be in those environments and they could be much more therapeutic and they could be much happier places. But we also have this huge population in the jail, the criminal justice system of mentally ill people. You've probably heard some of these sheriffs, especially like LA County and a few others around the nation where they say that they have this really huge mentally ill population and they have to separate them and have separate wings, but they still do really crazy stuff. <laughs> I don't use the word crazy lightly, that putting people who are mentally ill in isolation, is that going to help? <laughs> no, it's going to make them worse. Feminist Hot Dog is back with a new season packed with awesome interviews with icons, artists, innovators, authors, and lots of surprises. Whether you consider yourself a hardcore feminist or you're feeling feminist curious, tune in Wednesday nights at 8 Mountain and get all the information and inspiration you need to live your best feminist life. Listen Wednesdays on Loudspeaker and Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, love yourself and love your body. So there's a lot of abuse that goes on. And most people, I think, do care. If they really knew what was going on, they would want to act. They would want us to sign the petitions and, and vote and change things. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that's something that I've spoken to for a long time is the deinstitutionalization of mentally ill that started happening in the 60s. And that is when we saw the homeless population start to increase and increase until now, you know, I was just in New Orleans last year and they have tent cities under viaducts and yeah, and a very high percentage of mentally ill individuals. So I, I do think there's, and, and I hear these conversations with some of the city council people in town here around, we need to do something. I'm in Fort Collins, Colorado, and our homeless population is really growing. And it's not just getting them off the streets, it's getting them into care facilities. Right. There, there have been these housing first projects that are well-intentioned, but you can't take a seriously mentally ill person and just plop them in an apartment and say goodbye. The, they might burn the place down. You, you, they, you have to have wraparound services. And in some cases, it, it shouldn't ever end. Like my son, for instance, was in a program called FSP. And it, they have that in a number of states. It stands for Full Service Partnership. And it's voluntary, but if somebody agrees that to have a therapist and a case manager and a psychiatrist, they'll visit them weekly. Some people need more than weekly, but at least they'll visit them weekly and help them with their uh, activities of daily living and errands and doctor visits. And they'll do whatever with them. When my son had an FSP team, sometimes they would just take him out for coffee and talk, providing companionship. Sometimes they would take him to get art supplies or clothing. So they were fulfilling a lot of different roles. But that program actually tapers off. When somebody starts doing better, they drop it down to once a month. And then they're surprised when people relapse. And it's the same analogy of how we get so frustrated when someone who's on medication, they're doing well, and then they decide to go off their meds because they're doing so well. And it's like, no, no, no. The reason you're doing well <laughs> is because you're on the medication. But the mental health care industry has that same blind spot where they want to end it at some point. And some of it might be money. I'm sure there's a lot of practitioners and providers who do know we really shouldn't be stopping this, but the funds are limited. And another thing, again, if you can't appeal to the compassion of society, at least appeal to the economics. I saw something recently that, that said that it costs about $40,000 a year to pay for all of the emergency services surrounding uh, a seriously mentally ill person on the streets. It costs 80000 a year for that person to be in the prison system. Well, my son's program just costs around $40,000 a year. So why not do it right? Why not help people <laughs> from the get-go if it's going to cost the same or less, you know, why, it, and it's so hard sometimes to just show the obvious, the logical, the common sense. <laughs> I love what an advocate you are for this. I think it's so essential and so important that people have this information. 
that gives me a lot of satisfaction. In fact, even in my darkest times, even there were times the summer my son was homeless, I was going to family support meetings and people were listening to me. Some people, they really couldn't help me, but they were there to listen. But I still got a lot of satisfaction about helping new family members negotiate certain things that I had already been through. And that happens in so many other circumstances where your life may not be perfect, but if you can help other people, it keeps your heart open. It keeps you hopeful. I used to think that if something as horrible as this mental illness could strike our family, then maybe something unexpected and wonderful can happen also. So I still, I still keep that in mind, <laughs> medical breakthroughs, what have you, that it still could be around the horizon. And I imagine as you share this information and you're touching other parents' lives and they're feeling that connection with you and have that sense of, oh my God, I'm, I'm not alone here in the world and that sense of connection. I, I imagine for you that also must be just such fulfillment in that, yeah, like my experience and everything I've gone through, actually, this huge pain point actually matters. We don't want our lives to be in vain. And also, as an example, I volunteered about four years ago to be part of a program called CIT, Crisis Intervention Training. And it has to do with re-educating law enforcement about how to work with mentally ill people and to have better outcomes and not some of the tragedies that we hear about. And so I actually feel really fulfilled going there and talking to police officers and sheriffs because I know that I might make the difference in one person's life. That police officer is going to go, oh, you know what, let's get this guy hospitalized. He says he's fine. He looks fine. The parents have just told me 10 minutes ago he was punching the wall. Let's get him hospitalized. And who knows, maybe that will be the hospitalization where that person gets conserved or they get a, a treatment plan in place that actually helps them. So I feel gratification going and speaking to them because I know it's going to make a difference. I've even had some police officers come up to me afterwards and say, I am shaking. You have made a big difference. I'm not going to see things the same way anymore. And in fact, some of them confide that they have mentally ill family members. And we also know that police officers have PTSD galore. So we've got to keep talking about it. Yeah, I being I'm a trauma specialist as part of my therapy practice. And so I've dealt with a lot of firemen, a lot of policemen, a lot of first responders that have also dealt with this. And I do think, my God, there's PTSD for the individuals. In addition to the mental illness, they're mm -hmm. also dealing with PTSD from these situations, as well as the law enforcement and there really is treatment out there for that. And I guess that's part of what I want to make sure that we're putting out there as well. And one of my practices is EMDR, mm. which is a trauma protocol, and it's international. Mm -hmm. so I guess that's one of the things I want to plug out there as well is for people to, if they're dealing with a situation like this and an individual that they love or they themselves needs some therapy around PTSD that EMDRIA, which is E-M-D-R-I-A.org, is the International Association. And there's probably getting close to 40 years of empirical research mm. behind this technique. 
And so it really does make substantial change and difference in people's lives. And for, as an example, I'm a part of this little advocacy group of moms. Most of them are in LA. I'm the only one in Orange County at this point. And we're actually trying to put together like a petition of failures that exist in the IMDs, the psychiatric hospitals. And as an example, one, one thing that's part of our wish list, as we call it, is that we want anyone who is in that institutionalized situation to be able to have the appropriate therapies. And that could even include an outside therapist having permission to treat that person if the IMD, which stands for Institute of Mental Disease, doesn't have that program themselves. Let's bring in the EMDR specialist. Let's bring in the nutritionist with the orthomolecular nutrition background. As an example, when my son was in an IMD, I said, now's the time for him to have therapy. And they said, He doesn't have Medicare. He only has Medi-Cal, so he doesn't get a therapist. I'm like, you're kidding me. What other reason is he in here for besides the medication stability? Of course he needs therapy. So I think that we need to also, like you said, open it up so that people can get these innovative, well, 34 years later. (laughs) But but now it's popularized. I mean, now. Unconventional, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Types of therapies for people. You never know what's going to work. In fact, in the realm of medication, A medication that's great for one person could be horrible for another. I even read on this one website, I was just reading posts by people with mental illness, and they were basically ranking and grading psychotropic medications. And I happened to notice that the men who were on, oh, now I'm blanking on what medication it was. It might have been Seroquel, but in essence, it doesn't matter. There was some medication that men were on that made them extremely aggressive. And when the women were on it, it made them feel great and they wanted to clean the house and take a shower. And so I thought, wow, even there might be a gender difference in how people metabolize these medications. Is anybody paying attention to that? So we have a long way to go. (laughs) What is the essential message that you want to make sure that people are hearing? I have a few. It's hard to narrow it down to one message, but I do want other family members and parents to have better coping skills. And it can start with just reading a memoir by any number of authors who've laid out their whole story, but also to become more active in family support groups like the National Alliance of Mental Illness has chapters in virtually every county and even city in the United States. Get involved. Don't isolate yourself. And then ultimately, If you want to see things change, get involved with some of the other advocacy groups like the Treatment Advocacy Center, TAC, treatmentadvocacycenter.org does a lot of good work. Advocacy can sometimes just mean you get emailed a petition and you sign it. It doesn't mean you have to get on a plane and protest in front of your state capitol, but to whatever degree you can get involved. A lot of people aren't political and a lot of that stuff is intimidating, especially if you're in the middle of a crisis with your loved one. But when things are calm, if you can be more involved to make things change, It's only when the laws are going to change that your loved one with mental illness is going to get better treatment. And just as one example, we have these HIPAA privacy laws. 
from what I understand, there is a small clause in them which does say that if there's serious mental illness, that family members can have more input and more contact with the doctors and the treating staff. But the way many mental health care practitioners interpret it is, no, if this person doesn't give me permission to talk to you, I'm not going to talk to you. And we have to change that because countless people have been discharged to the streets and their parents don't even know where they are and the cycle continues and there's relapse. And that's just an example of something that where the laws have to change and then the doctors and the insurance companies and everybody else will follow through so that things will improve for our loved ones. Yeah, that's my message. (laughs) What is it, Katara, that brings you hope now? Because I've seen a model that works, actually, my son started doing the program the very first day. I thought there would be pushback and seeing how he's improved. Even the conversations that we're having are lengthier. He's even emailing me now. He was away from a computer for about 10 years and just seeing how his thoughts and how he's organizing his mental processes, that gives me hope because I'm seeing that he's just... He's in a stable environment and he's getting the right amount of care and love and medication. So that makes me feel, you know, hopeful that to see the improvement that we have in a year's time, five years down the road, 10 years down the road, maybe my son will be able to live on his own one day. Maybe he will get a job. I do feel hopeful. It's just getting to that point of the consistent high quality care that's been a struggle, and I don't want it to be a struggle for other people. In fact, but in my memoir, I outlined all the mistakes I made, and if somebody's really paying attention when they're reading, they're going to check off, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to do that. So it's hopefully going to be helpful for a lot of people. (laughs) The title is Noah's Schizophrenia, A Mother's Search for Truth. And how do people find you? I dedicated a website called noahsschizophrenia.com, and I've got uh, blogs going. I've got some social media accounts. It's my intention to be writing about mental illness and advocacy, as well as share the very helpful and formative posts by other advocates. So eventually, I don't have a whole lot of followers now, but eventually I'd like it to be a real strong point where people can continue to be informed and get involved. I've had people strangers call me and, and say, what do I do? And I say, okay, do they live at home? Have they ever worked? Are they on medication? I have my own little laundry list of questions to ask people in order to try to find maybe some appropriate piece of advice for them too. So I'm easy to find. <laughs> my interview with Qatar was really meaningful. I do think we have so much misinformation about schizophrenia and we need to educate ourselves further so we can do things to help others in our community, whether homeless or otherwise, that need more services. Those that struggle with mental health issues has had on families and on the individuals themselves. You know, I think of mental health as a continuum and we all have the ability to have depressed days, to have anxious days. There's times when we've all felt out of control as well. 
When we put ourselves on the continuum, it's no longer us and them. The National Institute of Mental Health and the Mayo Clinic are both wonderful resources for finding out more information about schizophrenia, its diagnosis and symptoms. It's something that we need to realize. It's a part of our culture. It's a part of our communities and that we can embrace individuals with schizophrenia and also help to provide appropriate treatment and facilities for them. In the end, we all need help. We all need each other. And I think that it's really important that we become advocates for ourselves and for others in our community that are struggling. I know here in Fort Collins, we see a lot of this demonstrated with our own homeless population. So instead of ignoring it or trying to just shut it away, let's open our eyes. Let's get more information. Let's find out how we can reach out and help one another more effectively. Remember, The Spark is your show too. If you have questions, feedback on the show, or if you're going through something and need a little help, we'd love to hear from you. Continue the conversation with us at our website, thesparkpod.com, and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. New episodes of The Spark air Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Mountain. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The show is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional and should not be considered medical advice. If you're having a mental or physical health crisis, please seek treatment immediately. The Spark is produced by NOCO Media Limited, which is solely responsible for its content. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Spark, igniting your best life. I'm Stephanie James. This is Loudspeaker.